Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So who really manages the economy? Is it the central bank or is it the government? In most countries, they act independently of each other, often at odds with each other. One looks after monetary policy, the other manages the fiscal side of things. But what if governments were to butt out of it altogether? What if they were told what their budget was and the central bank did everything else? A good idea or not? And what would the central bank, the ideal central bank, look like? That's today on the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. Yes, Steve, central banks, interestingly, were really established, weren't they, to protect banks? You know, they didn't, they weren't there with the role of controlling the economy. They were really there to protect the banking system uh, and not making sure the economy was going to stay stable. That was the reasoning when Woodrow Wilson introduced the Federal Reserve Act in, mm, in 1913. They sort of evolved more laterally into this role as the, the player of monetary policy and trying to stop booms and busts, which yeah, of well, course you, they yeah, failed I mean, at. Yeah, it was the, the, the fundamental role of central banks is being a clearinghouse for banks. Mm. That's ultimately what they evolve out of. I think the oldest central bank of the world is the Swedish central bank. Is it? I the Rix so. Bank? Yeah. It's got about 250, 300 years of history. Right. And um, and what you find is that uh, when, when you have multiple banks in an economy, um, the, the customers of those banks will have financial exchanges with each other. And it's at some point in the day, of course, that means that the reserves of one bank if, 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 if people have been talking back in the days of using cash for transactions mm. uh, or, uh, or even checks, uh, but at the end of the day, uh, one uh, one bank's accounts may have gone down, another account's gone up, and overall yep. there's a netting process they need to net out. And, uh, in so it's fact, like a clearinghouse function, which, yeah, is, like which my, is what they still have and, today and, and haven't. Yeah. And my father uh, was the Commonwealth Bank representative on the clearinghouse uh, in Australia. So I was regularly hearing Dad talk about the clearing operations. And you literally, you'd go along and have a daily meeting where you'd get together and net out the transactions. And the central banks fundamentally evolved out of that role mm. way, way back. And so that that was the initial idea. And then uh, when if you, if you had one bank which couldn't meet its obligations. So you, you can only meet your obligations as a, as a bank if you have positive equity. Okay. You've got to have some cash that's yours that you can hand over in a transaction uh, but with another bank. Now, if you end up having a collapse in your assets and you have no uh, you, uh, assets, your liabilities exceed your assets, you can no longer take part in that and you fail. And then, of course, because you fail, the one that you owed money to also can potentially fail and you get a chain reaction yeah. through all the banks. So the central banks, the, the real beginning of that was uh, the, the Longborg Street and I, uh, I forgot to remember, his, I remember the name of the author of uh, of Lom- Lomborg, uh, Lombard Street, um, and I can't you know, to the life of me I can't drag the name out of the back of my skull right now. Uh, but his argument was you ha- the the role of the central bank then in terms of a prophylactic against these sorts of crises had to be willing to offer um, security at reasonable rates and unlimited capacity when when something like that happened. So if you had one bank fail and it would cascade through the other banks, you let the one that's going to fail fail, but you don't let the chain reaction occur. 
So your role is then to provide liquidity to these on reasonable terms, uh, as much as is necessary to stop the system breaking down. Then you handle the banks that failed and you go on to the next one. So the, super, the, the role of central banks began with that supervisory role. Right. And that the Federal Reserve is the classic instance of that. But, you know, the Bank of England actually started life for a very different reason. It actually started as a tax collector for the government. Yeah, which is yeah, which yeah. is sort of why I thought you know it was interesting to have a discussion about the various roles of central mm, bank because mm. it was it was to fund the war in uh, 1694 and I guess you know if you wanted to, you, which war you know, was that the, <laughs> the, well there'd been lots of wars hasn't there yeah. but I mean it, it, back then the uh, I guess you know the idea was that you needed to have one central place to collect money if the government mm. wasn't doing it uh, and so the Bank of England was established to do that well you had uh, to do it back in the feudal days you had tax collectors yeah see a major reason and tax collectors is all based at the boundaries of feudal estates and you're going to go from one estate to another as a merchant, you had to pay tax as you went through and that was a major reason for the merchant revolt against cap- against feudalism. Mm. And when you look back at where economic theory came from, a large part of it was railing against the, the constraints of the feudal system uh, and it was largely those tax collectors. So this whole monetary thing is mm. relatively recent, isn't it? Everywhere. I mean, the, so the Bank of England only started printing money in 1833. It was only actually privatised. Only uh, it was Sorry, it only nationalised. It was a private bank until uh, 1946. So quite Private a, bank? The yeah, Bank of England? Yeah. Until 1946. 46. Quite late to the game. Boy, okay, I've got to do so, some reading of its history. 1946. 1946. Exactly. So, okay. I mean, I think it was taking on the, you know, the, the some of the roles, but it was mm. doing it as a... Funnily enough, like on the, on the same front, again, my father, and uh, uh, and this is later than 46, this is um, in the early 50s, late 50s, I was, I was, I was alive and kicking at that stage. Mm. Um, Dad... Uh, the, the the Commonwealth Bank was both a private bank and the government's bank, yes. and then they divided the function uh, in the mid. So I think it was the same sort of story. same sort of story, yeah. yeah. And so there was a private bank which then was 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 did the government's banking for it, but the private bank, and they split it into between the Commonwealth Bank and the Reserve Bank. And my father was offered a position to go to the Reserve Bank, and he turned it down because he didn't have a degree. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, there we are. You're a damn sight smarter than most of those with a degree. Well, yeah, exactly. Well, that's a uh, topic for another day, isn't it, mm. really? But look, I really wanted to talk today about, you know, the role of central banks mm. now, given that, you know, they've got they, they've got this interesting past in that they yeah. have, particularly with the Bank of England, you know, has been a tax collector for the mm. government. And we've got this- Was private as well until well, 46. Until 46. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Okay. Um, so and I'm fairly certain that's right. Go back and double. Ch- We're going to have to re-record all this if I've got it wrong. Um, but um, but uh, the, the role of central banks- Banks. I mean, we we look at central banks with their monetary policy. We've mm. got governments pushing fiscal measures, mm. rightly or wrongly. They're often at odds with each other. Mm. I mean, lately we've had we've had, haven't we? Central bank uh, governors and heads saying we've done as much as we can with monetary policy. Now mm. uh, the, the the economy is still stagnant. We need the government to pump some money into it. And uh, many governments like Germany and Australia mm. uh, and uh, are saying no, we're not going to do that. In the UK, you know, the the, the, the spending is actually even though uh, Boris Johnson. Since talking about spending more, the budget actually has to cut money mm. next year. So there's, you know, so if they're, they're saying this is what we want governments to do, governments are not doing it, uh, and yet central banks have got this responsibility for making well, this, sure that this the economy is, is, is growing. Actually, this is the revenge of neoclassical economics on itself, mm. and I'm thoroughly enjoying it in one sense <laughs> because uh, if, if you if you look at all the arguments from Friedman, uh, all the neoclassical stuff is really anti the government. Um, trying to do anything to manage the economy. The whole argument is the government, what they call the policy ineffectiveness proposition, PIP, 
uh, or uh, policy ineffectiveness hypothesis. And this was what where um, the modern neoclassical economics evolved from because they were anti-Keynes. So Keynes talked about the government needing to stimulate the economy when it's in a depression. Okay? Now, the way that Milton Friedman reinterpreted that was the government trying to stimulate the economy when it's in perfect equilibrium mm. and drive unemployment below the equilibrium level. So, if you look at if you look at Keynes. Uh, Keynes would not have described his economics as the economics of depression. It's much, much broader than that. Uh, it applied in boom times as well as in recession times. But the way he was reinterpreted by Hicks was to say that when we're stuck with low aggregate demand for whatever reason, uh, then the government is necessary to boost spending because at the, that very low level of, 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 of demand, uh, if you try to use monetary policy alone, it's like pushing on a string. Uh, you've got the you reach the minimum rate of interest. You can't bring it any lower. Yeah. So the only way you can move the demand out, and that was the role of government, maybe at aggregate aggregate demand. That became the mainstream even amongst neoclassicals in in the forties and fifties. But what it implied was the government can do good. Mm. Now you had this rabid right wing mob coming out of the University of Chicago, and Friedman's a complex mixture on that stuff. Some of the stuff he said was very uh, a libertarian, anti-state. Other parts were uh, quite like a pro-state in the sense he was in favour almost of the abolition of private banks. He was part of the, what's called the Chicago Plan um, or supported the Chicago Plan, which would have abolished private banks fundamentally, abolished the capacity to create money. But th all the way through, they were opposing the whole idea the government could make things better. So partly, Friedman began by reframing uh, the conventional analysis of Keynes and saying, the, we assume an economy in perfect, full, long-run, uh, full employment equilibrium. Okay? Mm. And the government then wants to drive the unemployment rate below the equilibrium rate. Then these things will happen. Well, that was not at all what was on about in, in, in Keynes. But if you look at the 50s and 60s, you had a period where the economy was there were very mild recessions when they happened, no financial crises like the Great Depression, and a period of great stability. And fundamentally, they forgot the Great Depression. They said, well, that was just an aberration, and God knows what caused it. Uh, that's an anom anomaly. An exogenous shock must have hit the country. Um, then forget the Second World War as well. Assume that the situation for the economy is always this long-run equilibrium situation. And then if the government tries to stimulate it, all it's going to do is cause inflation. Uh, and so that was the Milton Friedman's argument. Now, that got demolished within the neoclassical framework by, by Sargent and, and Lucas, who gave us the rational expectations approach. And they argued that um, the, the population knows what the policy of the government yeah. is, yeah. knows this will just cause inflation. And rather than reacting to too much money creation by government with a lag, which is what Friedman argued about, uh, they will instantly see the government's policy, know it's going to cause inflation, and put their prices up, and the entire impact of government policy will just be cause inflation. No change in real growth. Or, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And there's actually a statement from- Which you talked about a few weeks ago on the podcast. Yeah, 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 that yeah, thing. yeah. So, so out, out of all of this then, I mean, it, be, it becomes the question, if you've got you know uh, th this belief uh, amongst the neoclassic economists mm. that, that the role of government really is, is, is negligible or, or non-existent- Yeah. Why wouldn't they say? And, and central banks have got this role of managing the uh, today. Have got the management role, the dual role, I guess, of, mm. uh, of ensuring that the stability in the banking sector, but also ensuring that the stability in the economy. Mm. Why wouldn't you actually just say, well, okay, um, let's take that fundamental role away from government and put it all into into the central bank? Because it's backfired on them. 
because mm. they, the central bank swallowed all this stuff. Uh, they they swallow because because there's a certain academic intellectual hierarchy in, in economics. Uh, it's now breaking down, but this is the rule back in the 60s and 70s. Uh, if you're really bright, uh, you went as a, as a main as a mainstream economist. You got hired by a place like Harvard or Yale or Princeton, et cetera, et cetera, and um, and you worked as an academic and you developed theories. If you weren't that bright, maybe you didn't finish your PhD or maybe you did, uh, you got a job at the central bank. <laughs> and what you do, you then take the theories of the academics, mm. which would be a little toy model. So if you look at uh, Lucas's and Sargent's initial models, they're simple little difference equations with uh, you know a single agent and a single good being produced, et cetera, et cetera. And what you do as a central bank economist is you take that and expand it into a large-scale multi-sectoral model of the entire economy back in the days when they were what they called computable general equilibrium models. Uh, and so you swallow the overall philosophy that mm. these people put forward. So the Lucas, Rapping, Sargent, all these crowds said the fiscal policy is ineffective. Okay? Fiscal policy cannot work because the uh, populace knows the yeah, uh, policy and they'll neutralise yeah. the government behaviour. Yeah. You cannot exploit the Phillips curve for even one period, quote unquote, from I think a Lucas paper, and a, ra- a wrapping paper. Um, the central banks now are starting to question this. Well, they've, 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 yeah. they, they tried it and it's failed yeah. Okay? Yeah. because they thought that all they had, well, all that was left, and this came from the Taylor rule, is to control the rate of interest. Yeah. Okay. So set the rate of interest. There's even that. There's ignored. I mean, there's some central banks still hanging on to that. But even even in that, there's central banks now yeah. acknowledging that there needs to be more yeah. to that. So and had, we have a you know we have reviews going on. Central yeah. banks are reviewing themselves now yeah. to, to to question. Yeah, but say so forty years of that philosophies, and they ended up in a, in a in a cul-de-sac that they can't themselves under. Understand. Right. And they're saying we can no longer stimulate the economy. We can't cut the. We would like to cut the rate of interest below zero, which is one of the nonsense ideas they've yep. come up with. We're already at that point, and even that hasn't worked in some of the countries that have done it. We've got to give that up. We don't know what to do. Mm. Let's ask the. Let's government. have a review, or let's ask the government. Let's, let's ask the government. Let's, let's to the government do it. Yes, well, and, then, and, the, and then you get into the. Then you get into the whole area where the government will do whatever uh, is going to get them elected, and they'll say whatever they need to say to get elected without mm. necessarily doing what's best for the economy. Mm. So, so Boris Johnson is saying we're going to spend all this money up north, but actually the budget is saying the opposite. They're saying actually, well, we're actually going to spend less this year than we spent last year. So there's no pump priming of the economy coming from Boris Johnson, even yeah. though he's talking about that happening. So then, so th- so then, who's who's is best placed if we, if we started again do we have the economy being managed by politicians or mm. do we have the economy managed by and they will be different experts but managed by experts do we say to central banks okay your role is well, you can carry on that function of ma- managing maintaining stability in the mm. banking sector but you've got to manage the economy and you can use whatever tools you believe are necessary and the target is going to be, I don't know, well, that, that's something we can talk about. What would mm. the objectives be? Full employment would be one of them, wouldn't well, see, it? All, all central banks, and not all of them, but most of them have got a dual mandate of full employment and price stability. Yeah. And what has what happened under the, neo, the neoclassicals when they were in their ascendancy before they struck this dilemma was they said, well, price, the most, the price stability will give us full employment. Yeah, so, so they, we don't need to worry about that. That's one. right. Yeah, so we, we, we the direct target is price stability. The indirect effect is once we achieve that, there will be full employment, mm. and there won't be any. No, fine. And it literally, if you, if you the Phillips curve, the Phillips not just Phillips curve, the distortion of the Phillips curve. But yeah, the idea that there's a natural rate of unemployment. Okay? Yeah, the economy will tend towards a natural rate. We simply have to make sure the natural rate occurs at a low level of inflation. Yeah, and the area they this is come. And back. if we and if we get below that natural level of employment, and we're still not getting. Uh, 
uh, we're still not seeing growth in the economy mm. and we're not seeing inflation, then we'll just change that natural level of employment, which is... Well, which the is funny, the, the natural rate keeps on changing to suit the theory. Yeah. It, yeah. It's, it's one of these bloody uh, hobgoblins that the economists spend their time chasing. Um, so it, it, it's a nonsense situation they've got themselves into. And partly the fact they're saying that we really want the government to do fiscal policy, they're sort of saying, effectively saying our philosophy has failed. Not mm. saying that directly, but the thing is that philosophy that the government should not spend more than it gets in taxation has been has permeated the political class and a large part of the populace as well. So trying to argue for a deficit now is a real struggle. And in fact, it's the politicians. It's, it's funnily enough, the, the, the economists who argued there should be no deficits. This is Robert Barrow is the, is the key uh, character who gave birth to that idea. Uh, the the practical economists have tried to do this, the ones in central banks and so on, have got to the point where they're now finding inflation's below the target they want. Uh, unemployment, they, they thought that, particularly the Birmingham, what looks like a Birmingham economy in America with low unemployment, that should cause wage inflation. That hasn't happened. And they're finding, basically, it's a sense of despair. And they're saying, well, let's give it back to the fiscal authorities. Please run a deficit mm. to stimulate the economy. <gasps> Can't to run a deficit. Which I mean, but everyone's been talking about quantitative easing for the last, uh, goodness knows, how many years, which is, which is basically <coughs> running at a deficit, isn't it? Well, in, it's, in not, it's not a deficit. It's creating money for the financial sector. sector. Yeah. Okay. And, and even that one hasn't been as effective as they thought. And they won't admit it um, as much as they should. But they, you will see them saying asset prices are too high, but they can't afford to let them fall. No. So you get this. Can't push up interest, so right? So this, I mean, we've got it. Yeah, yeah. We've, got, we've reached the cul de sac. Yeah, basically. the, the cul de sac. They're stuck. How the hell do we get out of a cul de sac? Mm. Uh, the only way may be if we hop on the fiscal car. Yeah. Okay. But they've, they've persuaded well, the, no fiscal the fiscal car the fiscal not, not, to, not to turn the engine on, you know? <laughs> um, so, it, it, so, it, so if we. So we, I think I'm sort of like wanting to picture a position where we're starting almost with a blank sheet of paper. Well, yeah, so forget blank, where we yeah, are. Yeah. How would you stop this happening again? Would you say, well, okay, let's get central banks to manage it? And what would be the objectives of that central bank? And how would that, what would be the, the, the measures that they would track? And what would be the instruments well, that so they use? But first of all, yeah, before that, is yeah. it the right thing to do? Do we take, do we? Unpoliticize the running of the economy, given that mm. the, the running of the economy has become the, the central force for most politicians. It's largely what they talk about. Yeah, I mean, in, in that sense, I would say if we had an intelligent understanding of the complex system the economy actually is, uh, then I would say let's just create, uh, you know, an, a, an ex, a, a expert, properly expert group that actually understands what's what's how the economy functions as a complex system. Who manage it, yeah, and take it out of the hands of the politicians, and, and then, then they say, "This is how much money you've got well, to spend yeah. on on the, the, whatever," uh, the, and, and we think you need to spend more. I mean, I was actually once asked in a, a press interview with um, a German magazine, I think, about what uh, what what would politics be if we got the economics right. What would politics actually be about? And I thought it will actually be about things like how do you develop the culture of your society? Yeah, how do you uh, uh, what 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 social trends do you want to have over time, uh, and and that how do you look after the disadvantage yeah, you know, yeah. so you know you've got money to spend on it. it's more a question mm. of how much money you're going to spend less of a question about that it's yeah. going to be more a question of what you're going to do with it yeah yeah so uh, you know and I, have, I have sympathy for that position but the, mm. i mean partly it comes down to understanding uh, how the monetary side of an economy functions so that the cartoon book i've just finished writing and which I, I posted you know last week um that has my little protagonist tom dick and harry finding out that uh, the government should run a deficit 
because the government's deficit, and this is a classic MMT case, the, the, private, the government's deficit is identically equal to the, to the uh, private sector's surplus. Um, so if you want the private sector to be, if the private sector desires to save money over time, which they do, we're all trying to accumulate f- net financial assets, the way, only way to do it is for government to run a deficit. Mm. And it can do it because it is the only entity in society that owns its own bank, yeah. issues notes which are accepted for, cur- for currency. So at a, at a very automatic level, you simply want a government that creates the money that enables the private sector to, to do capitalism. And if you're taking it out, you're actually making it shrink. And the only issue with that is if you create too much money, then you're going to get inflation. Yeah, but if yeah. you've got control over that, if you've got this expert body, uh, we've got to find new experts, mm. we've got mm. this expert body that is there, they can say, well, okay, this is how much we can create this year yeah. without uh, running the risk of inflation. Government, this is how much money you're getting this year. And then what do you get out of that? The government getting a, a budget uh, which involves you know, a, a level of money creation required by society in general. And the debate is do we build an opera house or do we build a sports ground? Yeah. You know, it comes to those sorts of decisions. Uh, Sounds like very sensible, doesn't it? So, what would be the objectives then of that central bank? What would well, be they? What would be pretty, the, pretty much the objectives they give themselves today. now? So, but, full inclu- but including they'd have to include control over the creation of private debt. Yeah, but that, that's a, that's a, the the element which is missing from the mainstream theories. The, the the crucial element within the context of the economy itself, not including environment as well. Uh, that includes the role of credit and too much and creation of private debt. And abolition, writing off of private debt when it gets too high. I'd be including, I'd have three targets. I'd have a, a level of private debt with, with mechanisms that let you reduce it, um, a level of inflation, a level of employment. Yeah. And that'd pretty much be, but, but adding in that, that first one. So growth? Well, growth the, of the economy? Well, yeah, I, again, I hate, I've got to put this all in time in the context of the state of the ecology. And frankly, I think we need to. Re- we, we the, the real thing we sustainable need sustainable growth. Then it's I think that's an oxymoron. Okay? <laughs> so zero a sustain, sustainable yeah. reduction mm-hmm. in the human pressure on the planet. That's right. what we need, okay. and so that goes beyond what central banks can do. It becomes you then would have ecological experts involved as well, saying what is how much of the planet should humans use? Mm. Okay, uh, now so the, the, once you start putting this in the current context we're in, uh, that just redefines the entire thing because. Uh, you know, we, we are using, like, in, just in terms of the the mass of of uh, mammals on the planet. Not, I've seen calculations that say that ninety percent of the mammalian mass on the surface of the planet is either humans or animals bred by humans for eating or other purposes, and that's the meaning we're. Effectively, only ten percent of the of the mass of the planet is actually the wild species. Now. We are far, far overloading. We're a predator which is eating not just its prey, but the food the prey eats as well. And that is a totally dangerous situation to be in. Mm. And if, in terms of a sustainable target, we should be saying humanity as a species and the species that humanity breeds for its own needs should be using no more than X percent of the planet. And I've got a feeling that X is down at levels of you know, 30% or less, not 90% or more, which is what we're doing right now. Okay, so we'll add that to the list mm. uh, for the central bank. Income equality, is that their job? Yeah, again, because like income inequality, this is again where Blair Fix's work is, is so, so important because uh, once you have hierarchies developing, hierarchies and non-market mechanisms embedded in the market. And if you look at the growth of companies like Google and Amazon and so on, they're wiping out, you know, uh, uh, 
libraries and uh, and booksellers and and concentrating in just one institution, uh, enormous command system internally, uh, which is more effective than the uh, the market system it was competing into, and at the top of it you get the world's richest person. Mm-hmm. Okay. So our so that inequality comes out of the growth of hierarchy. Now the growth of hierarchy partly shows the the productivity of the system that's been put together. So Amazon's system of delivering books is second to none. Uh, and and that innovation has led to them completely taking over that many other delivery markets. And you get this, because of the expansion of the hierarchy and having salaries related to hierarchy, you get this outrageous inequality from that, um, leaving aside what central banks have done themselves to add to it by boosting asset markets. Uh, you have to say there's a, a limit to how much we'll let that that salary be, and uh, so there's you know it's it there's an enormous range of complexities to a capitalist economy, right? And so the central bank are doing that as well. So then, yeah. you know, let me add another one, then. okay? Because <laughs> it's you can probably go on on yeah, on with yeah, all of yeah. this, but trade balances, making sure you've got a good trade balance, yeah, and, look, and, and, that's, and, that's and then coming with that, you know, the yeah. control of the exchange rate, and that's that's like again, that's one area where I, I'm going to differ with MMC. I, I think you. Uh, we we really should have done what what Keynes was trying to target in the bank hall, which was to keep trade deficits and surpluses for each country to no more than two percent of GDP. So another target, yeah, yeah. So it's a lot. That's sounding. I mean, all of a sudden you've got a very busy central bank, and to yeah. a lot of people, this would be uh, th- this would be getting into the ground of politics because the question is how you know wh- what model are you following in all of this? You know, what's your what's your perception of how all of this works? And you know, it would be leveled that this is a you know this is like a command economy. It's a, a bunch of unelected representatives who are mm. controlling how the economy works. Yeah, um, so it's a big, you, it's a big ask. It's never going to happen, is it? It's never going to happen. No, but you, what what you it's interesting to talk about though. I yeah, mean, but it probably is the best way, really. Uh, you, that, and that's where the complex system stuff comes in because mm. it is an incredibly complex system. Yeah, and we we have had central banks targeting just two elements of that not realizing the importance of the third one that it's been my obsession for the ever since I've got involved with Minsky. Um, but as you say, it's also the trade, the inequality. There's so many factors there. And if you try to say, let's just keep the overall health of the system uh, from becoming pathogenic, then we need to have it understood as a complex system uh, and managed to that level, and then we can all operate within it. And we would want it operating in a way where it's not changing its tack and its approach every four years, every electoral term, yeah, which is yeah. why unpoliticizing it would be a be a good thing, but would be uncomfortable for a lot of people. Because yeah, and I think this, is, this comes down to you know, just how functional is democracy as we've defined it. I mean, to call the American system democracy, mm. you know, it's a circus. Yeah. Uh, and ditto for the bloody English one with the nonsense of first past the post and unelected House of Lords and... People being, you know, so there's so many elements. I mean, if the top, top, so what would be the, my hat to some of the lords I know, by the way. Yeah. Uh, You've uh, come back having met some of them and you love them all of a sudden. So the House no, of no, Lords, no, we, we need more like those. We talked about Nikki a short while ago. I don't think I've fallen in love with her yet. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, but, but this, we, we have a mythical vision of democracy. Mm. Okay. Uh, and we're trying to manage. We, we sort of see them as being, you know, this, we're selecting people to make decisions for us. 
which is fundamentally based on how narcissistic and so sociopathic they are. Right. Uh, and, and then we defend it because that's democracy. But it is hard, it's, isn't it, for, for us to say, well, okay, here's going to be a bunch of experts over here, a bit like the House of Lords in a way, but these yeah. would be real experts who are going to manage the economy at every level. They're going to look at, as we've said, you know, the employment levels, making sure we've got sustainability, we've mm. got, uh, we're managing debt, we're managing mm. income equality. We're also making sure that we've, uh, we've got the right balance of trade. Uh, they're doing all, you know, we're controlling the exchange rate. They're, they're, doing, they're doing all of that. And, and we try to leave a lot of the planet for the wild kingdom as well yeah. and not exploit it. Uh, meanwhile, yeah. the government over here who's just been elected, you can decide where that library is going to go and what colour the front door is going to be. It's sort of. We are sort of yeah. like taking away. But as we said, you know, mm. that perhaps a lot of the good stuff that they should be paying attention to is the stuff that governments would be uh, left to do. So what would be the instruments then, this fictitious new central bank for the well, new economy? A, a vital part of it is a capacity to see the the economy and the ecology as an interacting complex system. Right. And that's one reason I've been designing Minsky, the software package. Uh, it's not, for, not by far from the first, but it's the only one that actually enables you to model the monetary dynamics in a very simple way. Uh, so what would be those dynamics that you could twiddle then? You, obviously, interest rates would be one of them. Money supply would be, yeah, would be another. Simply also the, 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 uh, the load you're putting on the, onto the biosphere by production mm. and human consumption. And that, that by far is the most important one to turn down because, as I said, I think... Is that you, something you're monitoring? What, what are the tools that you're using to change that, though? So it's... Well, that, that, that becomes all, almost by saying this part of the planet is off limits. Mm. Okay, you, you would have to say, uh, we, like in humans, have expanded into far too much of the planet. Uh, we need to retract backwards and let that part of the planet rebuild itself, re-evolve over time uh, without the pressure of humanity on it. And that would be quite potentially reserving something like 80%, 70% of the planet to say that no humans are allowed there. Mm. Uh, now, that becomes, in a sense, management of the commons. And the commons not <laughs> just for us as a species, but the commons for all just species. Just cross that the- list off the things that government's currently doing then, that we give that <laughs> one to the central bank as that, well. That, that becomes a stage saying we, 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 we cannot make more than this percentage load on the planet, and we're probably making five times that load right now. I mean, I think... Again, look back at the limits to growth studies, which has been denigrated by idiots who haven't read it, and they, they quote the chromium figures, which are a table that was put in there, quoting the U.S. Department of Mines as if that was the prediction of the settlements ago. Anybody says that my, 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 my company better keep out of range of my left hook. Um, but, but we were probably putting the maximal load we should have on the planet back in the 1970s, mm. and we should have gone actually gone backwards from that one quite probably. So in a sense, it, it's, it's, it's like if you look at early human societies, we managed our commons through a system of elders. So and we need that for the planet. So uh, money supply, uh, interest rates, control of the commons, uh, don't mean the House of Commons, although we are taking most of the work away from mm-hmm. them. Um, so uh, I guess manipulating exchange rates, that would be part of their role? That, that, that was, again, the idea of the bank war there was to uh, a mechanism that would mean that you, uh, if you, you, you could not sustain a 2% surplus or deficit indefinitely. Mm. At the moment, we've got 10% deficits, surpluses being maintained by several countries and 6% deficits by other countries. Uh, You couldn't even get into that situation in the first place. So a set of mechanisms designed from a knowledge of a complex system, and in that sense, Keynes had it right in terms of the international trade thing. And taxation. If you're really taking control of the economy, taxation is the tool you've got to take take money away from Mm -hmm. certain groups of people. Yeah. 
political decision now, that would be a role of the central bank as well. Something or, else you, or, you, or you'd be creating a new, like in, in that sense, Gazelle's idea of money mm. uh, was was an incredibly sensible concept. You want money to circulate. And this is something I cover in the cartoon book as well. There's a clash between money as a store of value and money as a means of exchange. Yeah. And if you obsess on the money as a, as, a, as a store of value, you undermine its role as a role of exchange. Gazelle's solution, which Keynes was a great fan of and was tried in, the, in Wargle during the Second World War in Austria, uh, was money that depreciates unless it's spent. And then that would, if you had that, then you could have a government spending in depreciating money and you wouldn't get the uh, the the inflationary side effect because the money be self be deflating over time so you'd be re- you know you've got a massive when we get through if we get through whatever we're going to go through climatically i think there'll be an enormous reconsideration of how we behave politically on and ecologically on this planet so do you think i mean what we've outlined here is is a, <laughs> a very bold and radical yeah. step which will never happen but looking over the next five or ten years yeah. well looking at these reviews that we've got right now of the yeah. role of central banks yeah how are they going to come out i mean they're probably not going to conclude anything in the in the short term but if we look five years ahead can you see central banks doing more are they going to do less are we going to see more cohesion between mm. the roles of central banks and governments some central banks it's really breaking away the neoclassical religion mm. that's necessary and like you you've got elements of that to some extent inside the bank of england but fairly fairly minor stronger in some other central banks like uh um, the Central Bank of Hungary, uh, the Norwegian Central Bank, uh, are getting comments coming out of them that Im- imply awareness that they're just using the wrong map for the territory. So it's mm. starting to happen. Uh, but yeah, I, th- I think certainly we're seeing a, fa- a failed political agenda coming out of neoclassical economics reaching its uh, uh, apogee and heading down. Well, it's going to be interesting to watch then, isn't it, mm. over the next few years? Because it is going to be over the next few years, I think, that central banks are going to have to change their remit somehow. Yeah. Because as we've said, they're at a cul-de-sac. What do they do next? They've got yeah. to do something. They know they can't drive out themselves. Yeah. All right. Great to talk, Steve. Mm-hmm. See you again yep. soon. Beauty. And next time, we look at the role of multipliers in the economy. We all know how it works. You inject a bit of cash, we spend it, you give money to somebody else, they spend it, and so it goes on. But how is that complicated by foreign expenditure, by tax and the like? And do we give enough credence to this basic economic principle? That's next time on the Debunking Economics Podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. See you next week. 